Good morning. I'm Danielle Kelly, the Global Director of Culture and Inclusion at Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm joining you here today from the land of the Karingai people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm delighted to welcome our panel today, comprising special guests Deb Ashton from Symmetra, as well as our HSF panellists, employment partners, Natalie Gaspar and Xu Jinku. Deb is an executive facilitator with Symmetra and has a master's in organisational coaching. I first came across Deb when she ran a terrific breakfast webinar at our Sydney offices pre-COVID on developing a customer inclusive approach to product design and development. I found her insights fascinating and so we have invited her back to share her thoughts with us today and to particularly focus on how consumer sector companies are transforming workplace culture to meet evolving employee and customer expectations. After Deb has spoken, we'll hear from Nat and Shu on key themes from the HSF Future of Work report. So I'll hand to you, Deb. Thank you very much, Danielle. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to talk very briefly about the, the macro trends that we're all experiencing around um, consumer and workplace changes. And obviously I, I need to start that conversation with COVID, although I promise to only talk about it for a minute or two. So COVID is quite obviously a virus, but more than that, it's actually been a change catalyst for us. A change catalyst is one thing that then goes on to make, to go on to create many other changes, a ripple effect, if you like, a domino effect of changes that many of which are unforeseen that can go on for years. And that's what we've experienced in certainly in consumer organisations and within the workplace. And within those transformations that, that have occurred already and are still occurring, there has been transfers of power. So COVID has seen a further transfer of power from companies to consumers, and we're seeing that consumers expect more options, service and flexibility than ever before. And there's been a shift in power from companies to employees. So any of the old arguments for most employees, any of the old arguments for working from home or working flexibly lie in tatters. And hybrid is a kind of a new normal and the onus is now on companies to somehow woo many employees back to the office in a way that works for the organisation as well as the team. These are not small challenges. And there's also a discussion now about frontline workers who've borne a lot of the brunt of COVID, also enjoying greater flexibility. So there's this big conversation happening around employee wellbeing and employee flexibility that many companies, you know, are just struggling to catch up on. So these changes are not small and they're not linear and they're not clear. And there's no one solution. They are, in fact, what um, Ronald Heifetz from Harvard calls adaptive challenges. And adaptive challenges come often as a result of change catalysts. So in a natural world, an adaptive challenge for an organism happens when the ecosystem changes and the organism has to adapt to the new ecosystem or become extinct. And this is exactly what we're seeing with organisations right now. So we're seeing that organisations need to respond to what's happening in the ecosystem, which I'm going to talk about now. It's not just COVID, there's many other changes going on as well. And we risk that if we don't make the adaptation, that we risk obviously losing our good team members and we risk losing our customers. And the premise of adaptive changes is that the ecosystem is the source of your thinking for how you need to adapt. It's not what you learned at university, it's not what you did five years ago, it's not what's made you successful in the past, it's not about you at all as a leader, it's about the ecosystem and how we meet it as it, as it adapts and changes. So let's have a look at the characteristics of adaptive challenges. In an adaptive challenge, the problem is hard to define. It's often nebulous, it's uncertain, it's ambiguous. There's often no single clear solution. So it's moving. And it's easy to resist or ignore because adaptive challenges, they generate disequilibrium and avoidance. So they're big and they're moving and they're hard to nail down. And so they can create 
a tendency for avoidance. It has a much longer time frame than technical challenges. And Ronald Heifetz in one of his TED Talks talks about a technical challenge is when you know his son broke his leg and he knew what he needed to do. He took his son to the hospital, they saw a doctor, the leg got fixed, they did the rehab, leg mended, life goes on as normal. That's a technical challenge that most businesses are set up really well to solve. An adaptive challenge is where we um, have a disability, for example, that means that the whole of our life needs to change. It's not a one-off discrete event. And the, one of the things with, um, with adaptive challenges is that no one person has the answer. Actually, the answer emerges from the ecosystem plus what we do, our products and services, through a living process of experimentation. And the challenge for leaders are different in adaptive challenges than they are in technical ones. So for, for leaders in an adaptive challenge, the, one of the, the things that needs to happen is we need to be able to facilitate and hold in place this, what he calls productive discomfort. So this is this not quite knowing the answer, but staying on the course anyway to find a way. And Roland Heifetz argues, and his research would demonstrate, that the number one error that leaders make in adaptive challenges is that they misread the environment. So the thing for us to understand is that we're not just dealing with COVID, we're actually dealing with a number of adaptive challenges. BLM is an adaptive challenge. Me Too is an adaptive challenge. Racism, sexism, poverty, and certainly climate change are all adaptive challenges for us. And climate change, you know, is potentially single biggest adaptive challenge that we will face. And it's knocking, like it's right on our door. So what does this mean for leaders? Because this is actually a big part of the work of leaders over the next decade or more, is to lead us through these adaptive challenges so that our organisations and our employees come out fit and strong and matching the ecosystem. Well, at Symmetra, we think that inclusion is a really powerful tool here. And we've been talking about customer inclusion for a few years, as Danielle mentioned. It's not a necessarily a brand new trend. It's been around for about a decade, but it's certainly been accelerated by COVID. So what is customer inclusion? Well, when we talk about customer inclusion, we're talking about a shift in the organisation and in how it views its customers. So historically, we've often done things to customers. So we see our organisation as us being our employees and we sell to them our customers and they're our customers. So we could be quite customer centric. The shift of customer inclusion is about seeing you as a business that is in partnership with your customers. So we move from us and they to we. Anyone who spends money with you is part of your team. And so what we see in the shift to customer inclusive environments is that there's quite practical things, and this slide shows some of the shifts, the practical shifts that happen in a customer-inclusive organisation and customer-inclusive environment. But, but what we see in those environments is that the organisation has shifted from seeing its products and services as the asset to its relationship with the customer as the asset, and the products and services will shift and change over time, which is exactly what we're seeing happen in COVID. And that's the expectation of customers as well. And so this, it's, it's quite functional in that there's many practical changes, but there's also this deep, profound shift where we, we move from this shift that, well, we kind of move from this place that humans have come from historically, where we do things to each other, to the planet, and in business we've had a history of doing things to customers. We sell to them, we market to them. And the shift is towards we. So we're in this active partnership with customers and they're part of our team. They represent our pool of diversity of thought. They're the single biggest diversity of thought available, a pool of diversity of thought available to us. And they are the source of our thinking about products, services, direction, strategy, how we respond, et cetera. And so that's quite a different way of doing business. There's actually a growing demand for this. And, and this is one of the impacts of COVID. So McKinsey's did a number of large studies in the US in last quarter last year. So October 2021, they did some consumer and some employee studies to understand the shifts that had happened post-COVID. And um, what they found was that there's a growing awareness amongst customers 
that they can, one way they can participate in changing the world is to use their wallet to express their values. Now, this is not new, but again, COVID has accelerated it. So what they're doing is this growing group of customers who are, who are hunting for brands that are values aligned, that they want to spend their money with, and they're not spending their money with, or not investing with, or not working for companies that are no longer values aligned. And this is one of the ways that individuals are starting to feel powerful in the space of the adaptive challenges that we, that we face overall. And so McKinsey's estimates that this group of customers in the US is well over 100 million and it is climbing quickly. And one of the trends that they found is obviously more specific for the US, although it has global ramifications. One of the things that they found was that this group of customers who they call inclusive customers, that's their term, not ours, um, this group of inclusive customers are very active, for example, about supporting Black-owned brands. And it's interesting because, as I said, McKinsey's estimate that there's 100 million of these customers, yet there's 48 million Americans who identify as Black. So what we're seeing is a lot of alternative skin colours supporting Black brands because they want to see cultural change and they're willing to use their money to do it. Now, I think when this trend really takes off, the collective power of that wallet is going to be enormous. And that research is also supported by the Edelman Trust Barometer, which came out again in uh, final quarter last year, which shows that there's um, actually enormous increases or upsurges in expectations around big business of getting involved in the solving of social and cultural problems. And this creates an interesting dilemma for us as businesses because we're not quite set up to have uh, consumers understand whether we match their values really quickly. The biggest barrier that McKinsey's found among those um, inclusive customers to buying Black-owned brands was that there was nothing on the label that identified them. So simple, but not there. And so it question, makes this question, you know, what's on our labels? What are the values that we stand for? How would consumers know? And, and do we make it easy for them to understand? Well, that trend for customer inclusion, which can be quite practical, and we know there's a really strong body of research that supports that it is good for business and good for engagement, is also converging now with this transformation that we've seen in the workplace uh, towards hybrid working and this rethink that's happening across around the world, actually, uh, as a result of COVID. So the trend towards the inclusive customer is being matched towards the, in the trend towards the values aligned employee. And we know that COVID's prompted the big rethink. And we know from several studies, and it was confirmed again by the McKinsey's research in the last quarter of last year, that around 70% of employees feel that their work is a source of meaning and purpose for them. And that that seems to be growing. So there's this expectation from employees now around the relational aspects of the role. And that's really shifted in the last two years. So in the last two years, we've seen managers asking questions like, are you safe? Are you well? Is your family okay? What do you need? Is this really important question for us right now? And so the role of leaders and the expectation of companies has broadened. We've still got a business to run and there's this expectation now that you'll support my wellbeing and that you're doing something meaningful that I can tap into and that you become a source of meaning for me. And so the shift towards work life, sorry, from work life balance to life work balance is something that we also need to adapt to. And these trends are coming together. So that we've got these customers out there who are growing, who are hunting for brands that are aligned to their values. And we've got employees wanting to be more and feel more purposeful and meaningful in their work. And so we've also got generational shifts happening. So this slide shows the generations that are currently in the workforce, and I've included Gen A. So for those of you that are just getting used to Gen Z, Gen A are coming up thick and fast. They'll hit the workforce within 10 years. They're born from 2010 onwards, so they're quite young at the moment, but, you know, 10 years is a short period of time. And they're called Gen Alpha. 
and they're quite they're quite different from previous generations. But right now, I'm going to focus on Gen Z. So this is some research that was done by LinkedIn. This shows um, the difference in engagement on company posts that mentioned flexibility relative to the average company post over the last two years. So you can see the difference here. Gen Z are jumping on posts and millennials are jumping on posts that mention flexibility. Generation X are not very interested and baby boomers are not interested at all. In fact, they're shying away from it. Now, you might think, oh, what's the big deal in that? Well, the big deal in that is that if we've got baby boomers and Gen X on our boards and in our executive suites and as our general managers, we run the risk of them misreading the environment if they're not deeply tapped into what's happening with Gen Z. Now, Gen Z are going to be, by 2025, around 27 to 30% of the workforce. So we need to be paying attention. They're all your bright young things. And they have a different take on the adaptive challenges that we face. I want to share very quickly an example with you. It's a live example. I was running a workshop earlier this week for a client, Symmetra client in the global energy, chemicals and resources sector. So they're, they're really focused on climate change. And they, the senior executive who was on the call, who's in the chemicals division, said they had this chemical problem bouncing around for four months. They put their experts on it. Nobody could quite solve it. They had some solutions, but they weren't great. They tapped two external consultancies, also couldn't find something that resonated for them. And then someone said, why don't we ask the grads? So they brought in a group of around 20 grads into a meeting and presented the problem. And he said to me, he said it was a, 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 a moment that was enlightening and very embarrassing for him. So he said within 15 minutes, they had a probable solution. And within 90 minutes, they had a plan. And so he was feeling very alive and he got up and he said, thank you so much. I'm so glad we engaged you. You're brilliant. I'm so glad you're on the team. So I'm going to now go away and make this plan happen. And he talked about how he was going to do that. And one of the Gen Zers stood up in the meeting and said, what are you doing? And he said he stood there. He'd never had anyone stood up and challenge him. And he said, what do you mean? And the Gen Zers said, we want to be part of executing the plan. You can't just ask us in for part of this journey and then expect us to walk away. And he said that was the enlightening moment and the embarrassing moment. And so we miss, we risk misreading the environment if we're not deeply tapped into Gen Z and Gen Y and if we're not including them in how we do business. Because the thing that we need to understand is that we've got hybrid working now. We've got this increased demand for meaningful work. We've got customers who are seeking brands who stand for the same values that they do. So we've got adaptive challenges, we've got enormous opportunities, and they're just beginning. There is more change coming. I don't know whether any of you are looking at Microsoft Mesh, but it is the next uh, iteration of Teams. It's live, it launched in March last year, and it is basically a, a very simple eyewear technology that creates the capacity to hologram yourself into other people's homes, into the office, into shops, into suppliers, anywhere who has Microsoft Mesh. Now, this is just one example of what's coming, but this is live. It's low-key at the moment because Microsoft are testing it, but it's, it's the next version of Teams. It's going to become mainstream. And so how do we navigate these concurrent adaptive challenges? How do we read the ecosystem accurately? Well, we think at Symmetra that there's enough research really good research to propose to you that inclusivity is, is a really strong tool. And it's what's great about inclusivity is that it works for employees and customers. And you all know the value of diversity of thought. I don't need to espouse that to you. But what we've learned over the last couple of years is that the holy grail for any company in any industry, for any leader, is a team that can find a way. If you have a team that are capable and able to find a way, then you're in a pretty good place. And what we know is that teams that are able to access diversity of thought and operate inclusively are far more likely to find a way. And when they do, what they produce is far more likely to be received well by the market. It's far more likely to hit the mark. 
because diverse and inclusive teams are going to be better at reading the environment, better at understanding the ecosystem. So we think that customer and employee inclusion and really stepping into that space quite practically can support you to navigate these challenges. And as I said, there's plenty of research that supports that. Um, this was research that was done a few years ago by Deloitte that, that still absolutely valid now, if not more so. They found that when you have an inclusive environment for your customers and your employees, that that, that inclusion is experienced in exactly the same way. And that we end up in a virtuous cycle where employees want to create meaningful, purposeful jobs for themselves by serving customers who then also want to spend their money with you because you help them achieve their goals. And so we think that inclusion is a valuable, sustainable, common sense response to the adaptive challenges that concurrently supports engagement and performance. And the bottom line, frankly, um, and it's doable for, for most businesses. So that's what we um, wanted to talk about this morning and to share with you what, what some of these really successful companies are doing on, on to support themselves to navigate the adaptive challenges of COVID, of BLM, of the workforce, and of the ones that are coming up as well. And that's it from me. Thank you. Deb, thank you so much for sharing your insights. It's just so fascinating um, for our consumer sector businesses. And just hearing you talk about that shift towards employees having that real connection with their employers, it, it really resonates and it indeed um, correlates with our findings from our Future of Work report. So, Joe, I've gone other days where there was this master servant type of relationship where you come to work you do your work and you go home and then you you become a human which switches on your you know your, your thoughts and desires and things like that so um one one thing coming from that is um this concept of employee activism and mm. herbert smith freehills i'm really proud of um some body of research that we conducted so the first report that we conducted was in 2019 into the future of work and that obviously was a time pre-COVID and the findings from our report at that stage showed that um, all, a number of respondents to our survey, more than 300 or so across the globe, were um, worried and thought there would be an increase in employee activism. Um, so when you talk about employee activism, it's responding to the sorts of things that you were talking about, Deb, as those adaptive challenges. So we can see from our research that those um, flashpoints for employee activism are exactly the sorts of things that you were talking about, those adaptive challenges. So when we conducted our first report in 2019, those adaptive challenges were um, the BLM movement, the Me Too movement, and those those still feature as um, issues that um, employers need to grapple with. Since we conducted our report um, in 2019, we followed up with a, a, a subsequent report in 2021, and I do commend it to those listening it's it's really insightful piece of work which is available on our website um, and the follow-up report obviously in the in the midst of the pandemic still showed that employee activism um, was expected to increase 61 percent of respondents indicated that that was the case and those flashpoints for employee activism in the subsequent report again Deb are talking about those adaptive challenges that you mentioned so hybrid working ESG issues and the like so when you when you delve into that report and um, you hear the word employee activism I, I suppose it, it almost creates this visceral response that oh goodness that, yeah. that's a bad thing right but um, we're in the, this, um, you know, great resignation or great poaching, but um, with, with risk, I think, comes opportunity for businesses. And um, that was what I found so fascinating out of your presentation, Deb. 
So, Shu, I'm just interested in your thoughts. In, in how can businesses listening in um, turn this, you know, potential negative, I suppose, about employee activism um, to, in fact, drive employee retention and, you know, hopefully improve the bottom line and that, that deep customer engagement that um, Deb was talking about? It's an interesting question and I think there are organisations that are going to be somewhere different along the spectrum. In looking at our research, there's about a third that say employee activism is a negative thing. There's another third that are unsure and a third that see this as a very positive thing. And it's going to be whether you can harness that, um, that activism and that interest to help uh, you as a as an organisation. And I think um, what I found really interesting, um, both in Deb's presentation and some of the other material, has been this idea that there is no one solution. This is not something that you can take off the shelf, plug into your business and say, set and forget, and it's all done. I think what we're going to see is the organisations that flourish in this space will be the ones that have the connection with their employees and will be actively engaging with them to say, what is it that matters to you? And how is it that we can work together to deliver something both for you and for our customers that provides the best experience and that leads to the best outcomes, which leads to the improvement in your bottom line, however you want to, to measure that. I think the tricky part though is that employees and individuals are not homogenous. What you're going to see is differences of opinion about what organisations should do or should they actually do anything in a particular space. And that's where I think you're going to see friction and conflict and it's going to be about how you manage that, how you adapt, how you test something, see if it works, and then if it doesn't work, what you do to learn about that uh, and, and get it right. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, you look at what, I think obviously one of the main things coming out of the pandemic is the move to um, flexible working, to hybrid working and to remote working. Um, and just picking up on that theme, you know, how can you harness um, those concepts? Is the idea of flexible working here to say and what can employers do to deepen that relationship and trust beneath, between employees? Um, so, uh, one of the things we have seen, yes, this concept of the great resignation or the great poaching is starting to now um, make its way into Australia um, as we ease restrictions, particularly across the eastern seaboard. But it's a great opportunity for employers to differentiate themselves and restate that employee value proposition. But it requires quite a, a brave and decisive um, a view in relation to issues like flexible working and hybrid working. And indeed, my personal reflection, even interviewing candidates um, for, for jobs over the last six months or so, one of the questions we're asked quite directly is, how, how will I be able to work? Will I be able to work from home? Will I be able to work remotely? So I think obviously that's a key plank of an employee's employers strategy moving forward but of course the trick in that and the special source is how do you allow employees to have that flexibility while still creating that culture that connection that 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 richness of trust and i think one of the fascinating things that we've seen particularly during the pandemic and as we come out of it is that we, we know employees are placing a great deal of trust in their employers. So there was some fascinating research that showed that employees are actually going to their employers as the source of truth on issues like mandatory vaccinations and to be educated in relation to those things. 
as opposed to government or other sources like that. So, so it is that trick in trying to um, manage those issues um, at the same time. And, you know, we've seen businesses who've been able to retain their valued staff um, allow for people to move to the regions um, and to work flexibly in that way, come into the office in the cities, much to, um, uh, you know, the city Lord Mayors across um, the major capital cities um, bemoaning that and, and what that means for the economies in those areas. So um, the other point that I just wanted to make and to keep in mind is just the importance picking up again on, on Deb's theme is tapping into employee wellbeing and the challenges of doing that when you do have people working remotely. Um, and one of the fascinating things I think coming out of our future of work report is that 80% of respondents said that they were looking at electronic means to monitor employee wellbeing, which um, I didn't even know that that was a capability of technology, but it is so. And so that in itself can create, as our report shows, and, and Deb, this adaptive challenge of an anxiety itself about to what extent is technology, um, you know, anxiety associated with the use of technology and employee surveillance and the like. So um, I think it's really uh, fascinating in that space. So what I'm sure I just want to throw back to you. So um, it's one thing to have everything, everyone working from home, but as we do move back to um, office spaces and the like, hybrid um, models are going to be surely here to stay given what we've said. What do you think are the, for both the risks and opportunities for businesses in this area? Well, I think the first thing is that you look at how hybrid working came about. It was less of an evolution and more of a revolution. What really happened was it almost happened overnight. If we, as a, if organisations had to put that in place and allow that to happen, uh, some of us would still be in committees and trialling it and, and all the rest of it. Yet in a matter of weeks, everyone was up and running, working out the the little bugs in the system and able to, to function and has functioned uh, for so much longer than we would have expected. And there've been all of the positives that have come out of this. Uh, uh, my, my wife has said, you know, quite frankly, I enjoy this because I'm able to focus in and get a lot of things done. And if I have to go back to the workplace, maybe it'll be one day a week that's uh, agreed. Uh, with between her and, and her employer. Me, this morning I was going to come into work. It started absolutely pouring down and I said, nope, not going to happen. I'm not going to do my drowned rat impression and stayed and worked from home. And that there won't be an issue. There won't be anything that will be seen uh, as different uh, in terms of that. But I think where we're going to see issues is employees and organisations can be quite flexible. Where I think we will see some issues arise, are the employment regulation, particularly in Australia, is not as fast and as flexible. We did see some really quick and changes that were occurred, but they were you know, temporary in terms of extending hours of work and when hours are worked and overtime and those sorts of things. But that is an area where the law has not kept up and it's going to take some time. And I think that's an area where organisations need to think, what is it that we, what flexibilities do we want and how are we going to achieve those? And really think about where they see their organisation in two years, three years, five years, 10 years time. If we're all turning up as as holograms, that's you know, that, that's something else to think about as to how that's going to work. And I'll give myself some more hair when I have my hologram uh, made up. Um, but there will be those sorts of issues that, that arise. And Nat, just on your point in terms of, there's all of that energy and collaboration that comes about when you are working together as a group. And how do you still get that 
to happen if everyone says, well, I'll come in on different days or I won't come into the office at all? Do you try and create a culture where everyone comes in or do you mandate it? And how does that how does that work? I mean, I'm really interested in how people are thinking about that and managing it uh, on a go forward basis. Yeah. I, I agree, Shu. And I think the other thing that um, businesses need to grapple with, and particularly consumer sector um, companies, is this um, you know brilliant flexibility that's afforded to office based staff and managerial staff the reality is you are going to have to have people on the shop floor in your distribution centers in your manufacturing facilities and i think there's a piece of work about um, creative thinking to ensure that there is not that kind of us and them mentality and an unfairness that goes between these two very important groups of workers. And so, um, you know, grappling with the inflexibility of industrial architecture, because the reality is you can't have a retail store worker working anywhere other than in a retail store. But what other things can be, be done with that work group to provide other forms of um, flexibility and the like? So I think, I think that's a really um, interesting question that people are going to have to grapple with. So, so Deb, thanks, you. Back, back to you. How do you um, see consumer sector companies achieving that really enduring employee engagement and positively impacting the sales and the customer experience that you're talking about as being so important? Yeah, thanks, Nat. Thanks, Shiv. I, I think that um, I think that the starting point for organisations needs to be the consumer group, to be honest. It's your customers to say what is important to them and what are their values and, and, and then to work backwards from that. And I think then there's a, a piece of work around what do employees see as important and what are their values. And I think that this is where we need to include these frontline consumer-facing staff distribution centre staff, so staff that are really locked into a venue. And my background's in retail. I, I totally get the, the lack of flexibility. You're absolutely right, Nat. We, we can't have robot staff in the stores. So we, we need humans on the floor when the store is open. And so the challenge is to, A, think about how to do that role more flexibly, either in the work they do or the hours that they work, or B, engender a different level of meaning and purpose into the everyday work that we do when we're on the floor. And so I think that it's it's looking at those challenges. And I, I honestly think the starting point is consumers um, because it's consumers that we're here to serve and it's consumers that are the ecosystem that we are ultimately adapting to. And I think if we can create an environment where we are doing our role in a way that consumers find valuable and they're passionate about and we represent what they care about. And then we, we also create a level of meaning and purpose for our employees that's aligned to that. Then I think what we do is provide line of sight for employees that injects that meaning and purpose that sparks everyday tasks. So, so those everyday tasks don't necessarily feel so monotonous or so irrelevant in the scheme of, um, of what people are doing. So I do think the challenge is, is partly how do we reinvigorate what we already do, particularly for organisations that are locked into retail hours and, and, and provide that level of meaning and purpose. And, yeah, absolutely, navigating hybrid, I really think the starting point is actually consumers in that we need to be this way in order to conserve our consumer group and move with them. And employee activism, I know it sounds like this really big thing, but it, it, it is happening. So I read some research. Um, in one of the recent reports, I think it's in the McKinsey's report, sorry, I can't recall exactly which one it was in, about some employees at a Russian airline who refused to work on a jet that was flying to Belarus. They just said no. Belarus is the seat of um, basically a lot of humanitarian violations and we won't work on them. That was that. They would not support it. And the airline had to figure it out. It's a great example of employee activism. 
the example I just shared with the, the Gen Zer who stood up and said, what are you doing to a global executive is an example of employee activism. It's a wake up call. Um, and uh, one company that we've followed for a few years at Symmetra who do this very well is Patagonia. So Patagonia into AdventureWare. And um, in the GFC, they started, they did a complete rethink because they almost went out of business. And they decided to start caring about what their customers cared about and activate for it and, and become advocates for it. Now, they are, they are doing this amazing job of representing the causes that are important to their customers, which has reinvigorated their staff and they're more profitable than ever. So they are creating videos about rivers that are a threat of being dammed in Europe. They are supporting legal action in Tasmania to protect wilderness areas, and they won. They are making their supply chain really transparent, not, not in order to um, win brownie points, but to force their suppliers to clean up their act, and it works. And so that, that's a good example, and you can go to their website and see this, of where um, employee activism and, and being in your consumer's ecosystem that level of inclusion is really good for business engagement and the bottom line. Yeah, I love that. And what a what a, a fabulous example to show, um, you know, the different forms of employee activism and how we can, um, you know, you harness harness the good and and the the care that employees who are human beings bring when they come to work. Um, that was in our report, by the way, Deb. That it was in your report. Okay. Thank you. It's a great example. Great example. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I also want to say, look, it's not all roses, right? Like there's there's risks with employee activism. And we had a client last year, a North American-based client, who after after BLM sort of exploded last year in the US, one of their team members in their supply chain demanded that they change to black supplies. And it got very nasty and a, an existing supplier who was not black, they were a white company, white owned company, and they've been, been delivering for our client for many years, great supplier, but they literally got treated really badly because they weren't black. And, and what that turned out to be was one or two employees who were pushing their own agenda on the organisation without any kind of management, and it wasn't good. And so activism, you know, it has this enormous potential, but also some risks. And I think what's important for companies to understand is if we don't get on the front foot of it, then we're at risk of the risks. And so I think, you know, it's a good opportunity to think about how can we harness the passion of our employees? Um, and also how do we manage that bottom, that sort of downside, the shadow of it um, now so that it doesn't become a flare up for us? Yeah. Absolutely. I just want to pick up on, on one of the themes that has come out of this conversation about the reality that um, a lot of um, in consumer sector organisations, you know, distribution centre workers, retail workers, manufacturing workers uh, are there um, and there is less flexibility partly because of the industrial architecture that overlays that. Having said that, we have seen businesses be able to have to respond quite quickly to some of the more recent adapted challenges that have been thrown up, you know, in terms of curfews and moving to click and collect models and the like. So, Shu, I just, I just wanted to throw to you, I'm just interested in your thoughts on how successful companies can pivot but, but do that quickly to respond to some of these challenges. It's a, it's an interesting question, and I think it's it's going to focus a lot of people's minds over the next few weeks, months, and years. It's and I think part of it is looking at it in the right way that this is an opportunity. There's a need to be able to be flexible or increase their offerings, which means there may be untapped markets that are out there that we haven't got into because of the way that we have been set up and structured and so where are the where are the opportunities for us to grow and it also provides i think the opportunity for organizations to connect 
again with their employees around what they think. And Deb's example is excellent in terms of the, the future workforce and the individuals who, the graduates who are able to look at a problem, come at it from a different angle and say, we've come up with a solution, but then also want to be engaged in implementing that solution. So they have a vested interest in continuing that journey and coming into work and making sure that it all happens. So having employees who are not just workers, but advocates for your organisation has to help because it comes through not just in the work that they do, but it's that discretionary effort that they put in, in terms of being someone who agrees and feels that what they're doing is part of who they are. And if organisations don't hit the mark, then I think we will see people who will um, self-select out and decide that this organisation doesn't fit my values and they will go elsewhere. And, we, and there's reams of material around the great resignation, the great poach, all of those things around what that means going forward. And I, I think though, not everything is going to be done correctly. What we have to be able to do is give it a go and then reassess it and say, did it work? Is it working? Is it hitting the mark? So if, and we will have unintended consequences and we have to manage that, adapt, assess, evaluate and keep going because there's always, there can be that desire not to do anything because that's the easy and safe path. And just, just before I finish up on that point, one of the interesting things in terms of research has been around organisations that take a stand. I think there's another aspect to that, which is as an organisation, if you don't take a stand, people are seeing that as well as you are still saying something. It's not that you're neutral and not uh, engaging in the debate. You are being seen as engaging in that debate by not engaging. So that will mean there's more pressure on us to take a position um, and how that then plays out. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so that example of the, the um, Gen Z graduate group, um, Danielle, that must resonate with you because we're seeing that many organisations are utilising um, employee resources groups or ERGs to tap into some of that diversity of thought. I'm just interested, are you seeing a shift in the way that employees are engaging in those diversity initiatives or other forms of diversity initiatives? Yeah, thanks, Nat. Definitely seeing a shift. I've been working in diversity and inclusion for a number of years now, and I, I look back on the early days, particularly in Australia when DNI was still quite a new concept, and Herbert Smith Freehills and that many organisations I suspect listening here today would remember when literally flooded with um, employees wanting to get involved, passionate about um, diversity, passionate about gender. Um, ethnicity, whatever the particular area. And you still see that now, but there's a shift in the expectations of those employees regarding the heavy lifting that they are now expecting the organisation to do. And I think that's a really good shift to see because it's being accompanied by, rather than DNI in the early days being sort of a lot of events, you know, women's events, for example, filled with only women that were all the heavy lifting was done by the women in the room and it was all you know something of an echo chamber a lot of the time now it's a much more expansive mindset around actually all of these issues go to dni and yes as an employee i'm i want to get involved i'm prepared to get involved but what are you going to do as in my employer to support this and so that might look different for different organizations but you know certainly i'm seeing more um, mainstream roles that are having you know 20% of their time carved out for firm building or organisation building initiatives, including DNI. 
um, there's also an expectation that employees want to be recognised and remunerated for this extra work that they're doing rather than just thinking, oh, I'm lucky to be burning the midnight oil working on that DNI event. And I think organisations that are not tapped into this are seeing a declining popularity in, in DNI. And certainly the um, for for the um, any people in um, in-house legal teams listening, the Thomson Reuters State of the Legal Market report that has just been released actually shows declining popularity of DNI work streams in a number of law firms. Um, it's North American focused research, but I still think it's um it's worthy of, of paying attention to. And just picking up the point that that um, Deb was making in her section about the, the LinkedIn 2022 talent report, and she talked about the generational differences in how topics like work-life balance, well-being are engaged with. And, and Deb, you made the point around, you know, it's so important that we, we tap into that um, cognitive diversity that different generations bring. But I was interested to read in that report as well that in fact 66% of Gen Z wanted their organisations to be investing more in mental health and, and wellness um, versus only 41% of Gen X and 31% of baby boomers. And so it's just so important that leaders are aware of that research, are curious about it, um, pause before perhaps going into going to judgment around you know what's important or what's not important to an organization's culture. Another point I wanted to pick up there was you know there's been a lot of discussion this morning around purpose and meaning in work and I recently was having a conversation about that with Professor Rob Cross from Babson College who's done a lot of work with Amy Edmondson on psychological safety and purpose and the point I wanted to make is that purpose doesn't necessarily mean a noble purpose. And by that, I'm certainly not being a cynic at all, but his research indicates that, in fact, it's the purpose and meaning that you derive from being a member of a team and a collegiate team where there is high psychological safety and collegiality that can actually be more important than the overarching purpose of the organisation. And the particular research that he referenced was he'd been working with Boston Children's Hospital, where you would, you know, incredible purpose, saving children's lives. And then he was also working with an HR software data analytics company. And in fact, the engagement scores around purpose and meaning at the HR company were significantly higher than the children's hospital because of psychological safety in those two different environments. So I think that's worth, worth bearing in mind as well. And so coming back to the generational differences, I wanted to just briefly mention something that we've done at Herbert Smith Freehills to almost build um, something into our system to ensure that we are tapping into that cognitive diversity and that's that we've created a people forum in each of our regions. And so the people forum is a group of very talented people from across the business who have um, applied for a role on that. It's a very highly sought after role. Um, the only criterion is that you can't be a partner. Um, and so a group of 10 people in Australia, they come from all different areas of the business, business services, lawyers, junior through to senior associate, etc. And they engage with the Australian executive on some of those really important people and culture issues where the Australian executive would definitely be missing some of those Gen Z perspectives that that people forum can bring. And so rather than just sort of leaving that to chance, we've, we've, we've changed the system or as, as Deb, you referred to it, the ecosystem to actually build that, that um, cognitive diversity into it. Um, the final point I wanted to make was that there are also shifting expectations from employees, but also I think from, from you know, consumers more generally, after all, employees are also consumers, around expecting that organisations and companies have an abundance mentality in relation to diversity and inclusion. So 
it's not okay to just focus on gender or just focus on ethnicity, because if you only focus on one particular strand of diversity, then how can you actually be truly inclusive? And you know, people are human beings, they're not simply a representative, representative of a particular diversity strand. And obviously intersectionality comes into play there as well. So HSF is the only law firm member of the Australian Disability Commissioners Includability Network, which comprises some of the, Australia's largest organisations and it's all focused on better inclusion of people with a disability in employment. And I know that a number of the organisations that um, are listening here today are also members of that network. And I mention that because I think disability has often been seen, particularly in Australia, as the last frontier of DNI programs, almost like, okay, well, we're focusing on gender now. Um, we'll look at disability down the track. But mm. it's just not okay. I don't think it ever was, but there's just a growing understanding that strategic work that an organisation does in relation to one particular strand of diversity inevitably benefits everyone. Um, and just a quick example of that, our Ability Network has worked with our, our IT department to improve um, accessibility features on Teams and our understanding of them, such that now many of our meetings start with people now automatically turning you know, tran the transcription feature on, which was something that one of the hearing impaired members of that network suggested, but now it's become something that many of our lawyers are finding super helpful, particularly some of the litigators when they're um, attending online court hearings. So for me, that's a good example of where an initiative which starts as a diversity initiative ends up having positive flow, in, flow on impacts for the organisation as a whole. Well, that's so fascinating, Danielle. And you're just, just talking about those things. I was just reflecting on the, the most two recent Australians of the year in Grace Tame and Dylan Alcott now and it just it just becomes part of the, the public discourse doesn't it and raising awareness in these issues. Um, we could talk all day long about these fascinating topics but we've got just two minutes left I think. Um, perhaps Danielle back to you and, and we can grab a, a last leading thought from each of the panellists. Sure, thanks Nat. Look, I just wanted to mention three things. For me, the key themes in this discussion today have been all around the adaptive challenge that's been brought about by the, the catalyst of COVID and that, that shift in work that we've seen and an expectation has taken place in two years rather than more than a generation, which would normally have been the case. Secondly, is that deep, profound shift in um, that, that Deb was talking about in terms of consumer sector companies about thinking about what they do for their consumers and but now being how do we together co-create solutions and then finally the dramatically in increasing expectations of employees around the relational aspects of the role and particularly around trust but I will pause there and Deb any final comments. No I think you've wrapped it up Danielle I, I think um, really that it, we're filled with opportunity here and, and it, these things are doable. We're, there's actually a history of inclusion as, as supporting how we respond to adaptive challenges. So I think it's doable. It's not easy and it's not simple, but, but I think it's very doable for, for organisations. Thanks, Deb. Shu. I think just picking up on that last point, this is not easy. So don't expect that you're going to be able to solve it in an afternoon or a day. Um, it's a long haul, but the rewards are worth it and so stick with it and the, the results will come. Thanks. And Nat? Oh, two quick things for me. One um, coming out of this discussion is that employers, as I said, don't have this master-servant relationship anymore and um, it's almost like this parental role and, and the importance of trust in that relationship is um, so critical to being able to leverage all these fantastic opportunities that we've been speaking about but um, you've got to get the basics right so that you don't damage that trust and um, sorry to wear my employment industrial relations hat but that means the, the basics like making sure 
that your people get paid properly and those sorts of things because if that trust is damaged, um, you know, all, all the goodwill in the world goes out the door. So that's it from me. Thanks, Nat. That's all we have time for today, but thank you to Deb, Nat and Shu for a really fascinating discussion and thank you to all of our listeners. I wish everyone a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.